Arizona voters will have the opportunity next month to decide whether to pass Proposition 205, which would legalize recreational marijuana use in the state. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll dig in on the measure and find out what supporters and opponents are saying about it. We'll talk with Ray Stern of Phoenix New Times about what's been flying back and forth and whether controversy about Prop 205 is growing in the wake of DES Director Tim Jeffries' recent forwarded email opposing it. Also, journalist Devin Brown spent a lot of time on the Arizona-Mexico border working on a film project called Hotel Arizona. It explores who works in and is affected by the so-called migration economy. I'll talk with Brown. And humorist and author Lori Notero is back with a new book, but it's in a different genre. Notero takes readers back to the early 20th century when a number of women were competing to be the first to fly a plane across the Atlantic. Here and now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, we'll dig in on the pros and cons of Proposition 205, which would legalize recreational marijuana use in Arizona, with Ray Stern of Phoenix New Times. Also, humorist and author Lori Notero is back with a new book of historical fiction. I'll talk with Notero about transporting readers back to the early 20th century, when a number of women competed to be the first to fly a plane across the Atlantic. We start today's program with a look at the latest visit to Arizona by Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump. He spoke on Tuesday in Prescott Valley a few hours before last night's vice presidential debate. Political analyst and former state legislative leader Chris Hurstam is with me to talk Trump. Chris, good morning. Good morning. So why does Trump keep coming back to Arizona? That's a good question. I'll tell you, I I, I haven't figured it out yet. The only thing I can come up with is that this race, the presidential race in Arizona, is closer than people think. Uh, This was his sixth appearance. He went right into the solid red area of Prescott Valley, uh, clearly trying to whip up his base and get the votes out. Uh, Perhaps the guidance comes from a couple of new polls today. Uh, One, an Arizona Google consumer survey uh, that was taken from September 27th to October 3rd shows Clinton with 39%, Trump 33%, Johnson 6%. And then there's a new Reuters-Ipsos Arizona poll that just came out that shows Trump with 46%, Clinton with 42%. So when you look at the numbers of some of these polls, that have come out, um, they say it's close. They say Arizona is still up for grabs at the presidential level. Trump's people must believe that, or why would he keep coming? Exactly, Chris, because there has been talk for a while about very very different races over the years, that whether Arizona could turn and, and be more democratic and whatnot. We haven't seen a lot of evidence of that, at least at the statewide level. But in this particular race, is this just the fact that Trump has so many negatives that perhaps he has a very strong base of support here in Arizona, but beyond that, he needs to make sure he gets other people to vote for him as well. Because as you mentioned, Prescott Valley, those are folks he would already have. Well, I think the fact that he went to Prescott Valley and the fact that earlier in the day he was in a solid Republican area up in Colorado, that he's, and he's trailing in Colorado, shows that the Trump campaign has basically given up on trying to get um, centrists or moderates or more women to to their side, which he has to do to win at the national level. They're just now concentrating in these last 30-some days on their base, their right-wing base, and they're going and campaigning strictly in right-wing areas. I, I would point this out to you, though. Um, 
Trump may still yet win Arizona, but in my opinion, the reason he'll win Arizona is because Hillary Clinton is not coming to Arizona. She is concentrating on Nevada and Florida and uh, Pennsylvania, etc., and she is not come in during the general election one time here. In fact, I'm told that Chelsea Clinton and Tim Kaine both have fundraisers scheduled in Arizona over the next 10 days or so, and no public events have been, have been scheduled yet. I find that bizarre. Uh, if the race is really within three or four points either way, um, why wouldn't the Clinton campaign be trying to, to, to score and to win Arizona? I think they've come to the conclusion that, yes, maybe we could win Arizona, but it, our chances are better in Nevada. Our chances are better in Florida, etc., and they're going to concentrate on the traditional battleground states. And if Clinton doesn't come into Arizona and do a, a public event, etc., she may they very well let Arizona uh, slip away from her. Now, you know a lot more about campaigning, Chris, than many of us listening right now, but I have seen many, many Hillary Clinton ads, many of them, of course, portraying certain things about Donald Trump, how he relates relates to women and, and many other people. Ads for a lot of people are the way they sort of find out more about a candidate to begin with. So are you saying that in this case, in order to really sell the deal, it's not just about ads, it's actually a personal presence? Oh, I think so, because uh, I, when a candidate comes into town, particularly one that has not come six times like Trump has, um, they they could move into to Phoenix and Tucson in a very short time period. And a lot of activists, a lot of people that are on the ground that are getting the vote out, it's their chance to celebrate. It, it whips up excitement, and it's what you do if you – if if the rate, if the state is very close which arizona may be that's just the reality but but you only have so much time and apparently the clinton people up till now at least have just decided to try to raise money in arizona and shift that to other battleground states anything from yesterday that indicates to you that donald trump in any way has modified or moderated his measure his, his message rather no, Trump delivered his normal disgusting stump speech. Uh, Trump buried the Prescott Valley crowd with red meat. Uh, he portrayed America as some dystopian wasteland ruled by, quote, criminal aliens. And, and, and by the way, that ter- offensive term, criminal aliens, was used last night by uh, his vice presidential running mate, Pence, in the, in the VP um, debate. Um, he is sticking with the same uh, right-wing red meat, uh, throwing it out there, um, you know, a- attacking uh, Hillary Clinton as the most corrupt individual we've ever seen, and, and really making Arizona sound like a, uh, not only Ar- not Arizona, but the nation, sound like a dark, foreboding place that only he can turn around and bring us back to the good old days. It's the same ridiculous speech that he's given over and over again, and he thinks it's going to give him the presidency. I don't think it's going to work. And Chris, finally, is that message, the negativity that you're citing, is that enough to get folks on the other side or those on the fence to decide to get actively involved and either work against him or vote against him? No, I think, frankly, the, the, the 9 or 10% that are on the fence, which is still a rather high number for this late in the campaign, um, they're just going to decide towards the end um, 
they don't like either candidate clearly, or they would have been committed by now. And I think they're going to have to decide: look, who who is going to make the best president, even though we don't like them personally. And um, I just got to believe that the majority of the undecided votes are going to swing to Hillary Clinton because of her qualifications and uh, because of all the crazy comments that Donald Trump makes. Political analyst and former legislative leader Chris Hurstum. Chris, thanks. My pleasure. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. And now with me is Republican political and PR consultant Shane Wickvers of Red Mountain Consulting. Shane, good morning. Good morning, Steve. So why do you think Donald Trump keeps coming back to Arizona? Well, the, the election is very close here in Arizona. As uh, Chris mentioned, uh, the polling reflects that Donald Trump is about two points ahead, which should put any presidential candidate uh, in a very nervous position, especially considering in 2012, Mitt Romney won the state uh, 53 to 44 percent over Barack Obama. So he's got to get back here. He's got to calm and give some comfort to some of the Republicans who uh, who are traditionally uh, in, in line with more of the establishment, as he likes to call them, and give them some motivation uh, to vote for him. But it's going to be close, and Hillary uh, realizes this. I, I don't think she'll pull all the stops out here in Arizona to try to win this election. But there are some factors, such as la- uh, Latino turnout, that she is hoping will finally come to fruition here in Arizona this election cycle. Now, Shane, you're a longtime conservative, and I think it's fair to, to label you as a social conservative. Um, does Donald Trump's message in that sense even though I presume you you wouldn't be voting for Hillary Clinton, does his message make you nervous in any way as a social conservative? It it, it does. It still does, and it and it comes. Most of that is uh, from his historical background and positions he's maintained in the past. What does give uh, social conservatives comfort when it comes to this ticket is Mike Pence. Mike Pence brings to the table uh, some very sound, solid positions on a lot of the cultural issues. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why Republicans like myself uh, and many other Republicans who kind of fall in the traditional fold of the party are are supporting uh, this ticket is because of Mike Pence. Shane, there's uh, there are some who have compared Trump in certain ways as a less conventional candidate. They've compared him to Ronald Reagan for some, although Ronald Reagan had served as governor of California. So the differences are, are pretty stark there. But just someone who's more about communication, perhaps, and and a little bit less about the message. But a lot of people, especially fans of Reagan, would say that his message was was usually pretty positive, whereas Trump's is is pretty negative. Do you think that you think that hurts the overall embracing of Trump, perhaps even more than the things he says? It's the way he says them. It does, and this has been one of the reasons why uh, Republicans have struggled with Donald Trump as the nominee. Uh, I, I disagree with his. Uh, this optimism message. Uh, I don't think Trump has been anything but uh, uh, inflammatory in this election cycle. And it's caused a lot of us great concern. After the 2012 election cycle, there was a lot of uh, sitting down and looking back at the election cycle with Mitt Romney. And and many of us walked away with this saying we need to appeal uh, much more strongly uh, to positive tones with millennials, with women, with Latinos, and this election cycle has been anything but that. And that's one of the, the biggest problems that uh, Republicans have had with Donald Trump and how he, how he gets out there and, and sells his message. 
So what are the things, uh, obviously a lot of people listening are, are those who probably have heard a lot about Trump and perhaps some are pretty negative toward Trump. What are some things that you as a conservative, as a Republican, are thinking that that you are positive about Trump? We've sort of talked about the negative parts. Are there any things that really get you sort of excited as a Republican about him? Well, here, here's the, the big picture. You have two candidates that are not very well liked by the electorate. And the problem is uh, who can agitate enough turnout? Where Trump's appeal is, and this is unusual, it goes against what I mentioned earlier about the 2012 look back, and that is he uh, he is hoping to agitate enough disaffected independents and enough blue-collar workers to turn out for him. If, if that's the case, then he can win. The big factor that nobody uh, is quite yet uh, sure how it's going to go is how will the Hispanic vote uh, this election cycle, and will they finally uh, reach a critical mass to affect the election cycle? Traditionally here in Arizona, the Latino turnout has not been that high, except in isolated situations like the Russell Pierce recall. So in this case, uh, the question is, is who agitates enough people to turn out, given the fact that most can- that both candidates are not very well liked by the electorate? And I think whoever does that the best will win the election. And if we're just focusing on Arizona, is there anything that you think would, would swing this a little bit one way or the other? As you mentioned, it appears Trump, based on most polls, is up by a couple of points in Arizona. Do you expect that to hold? And if not, what would change uh, enough percentage points to, uh, to get Hillary Clinton ahead? I, I think it will hold as we get closer to Election Day. Those numbers will start to solidify even more, although many, many people have already made up their mind. Uh, I think if Trump uh, was to come to the East Valley and speak primarily to the LDS vote in the East Valley, he would give uh, much more reason for some of the disaffected LDS uh, Republicans to vote for him, especially after the insults that he's levied on Mitt Romney. And uh, that that could certainly help. But he has not done that. And um, and I, I think that as we get closer, early ballots go out here within the week, people are going to start casting their votes. And, and it's going to be a very, very close election. And I think most of us feel that this is probably the most unpredictable general election presidential race that we've seen. Republican political and PR consultant Shane Wickfers of Red Mountain Consulting. And Shane, thank you. Thank you, Steve. Still to come on here and now, we'll dig in deep on Proposition 205 which would regulate marijuana like alcohol. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Phoenix College Theater presenting the prime of Miss Jean Brody. An eccentric teacher in 1930s Edinburgh influences her young charges with her dangerously over-romanticized worldview. phoenixcollege.edu slash theater. Good morning. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now on 91.5. If you're listening online at kjzz.org or the free mobile app, thanks for joining us. Supporting KJZZ is a quick and easy way for you to make all the programs you rely on possible. Are you in? You can set up an affordable automatic donation. Just click on I'm in and become a sustaining member at kjzz.org. Checking traffic on the Loop 101 northbound at Thomas. The shoulder is blocked by an accident. And we're looking for sunny skies in the valley today with a high of 87. Tonight will be mostly clear with a low of 64. Tomorrow, a high of 87. By Friday, 93 degrees.
Around the state, it's 79 in Tucson, 56 in Flagstaff, 66 in Prescott, and in Phoenix, sunny skies and 81 degrees at 1121. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. Proposition 205, or the measure to regulate marijuana like alcohol, is on Arizona's ballot next month. And not surprisingly, it's generated passion on both sides of the argument. Will it help put money into Arizona's underfunded public schools, or will it make marijuana easier to access for kids and lead to greater addiction? Ray Stern of Phoenix New Times has been looking into Prop 205 deeply and is here with me to share what he's learned. Ray, good morning. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Good. Good to have you here. Let's break down a little bit, first of all, who is supporting this proposition, and where's the money coming from? Um, The people that are supporting it really come from two categories. Um, The first one is the National Marijuana Policy Project, um, and they're the people that were responsible for putting um, Prop 203 on the ballot, which, of course, was successful and gave us our Arizona Medical Marijuana Act in 2010, and they also put the Amendment 64 uh, on the ballot in Colorado, which was also successful in 2012. Um, the other category are the dispensary owners, um, the medical marijuana dispensary owners who are already existing here. They've been doing business uh, since the uh, law passed in Arizona, and they will benefit from this law if it passes. And the opposition? The opposition, it, it's come from a wide range of uh, sources, um, a lot of establishment sources, so the Arizona Chamber of Commerce, um, Pima Medical School, um, large businesses like that have given. Um, a lot of uh, Doug Ducey contributors have given, whether he contact, contacted them directly or the, camp, the, the Arizona's for um, Responsible Drug Policy, which is the opposition group, are using his donor list. Um, I think that a little of that may be going on. Um, and then they've also had these controversial um, donations. Um, the biggest one that they've gotten is uh, $500,000 from Insys Therapeutics, which is a Chandler company that makes fentanyl. And they are also um, uh, making a, uh, an alternative to marijuana. It's a, it's a synthetic THC that they expect to market. And controversially, uh, they had an SEC statement from a few years ago that basically said that they're, they're opposed to legalizing marijuana because it would interfere with their business. Um, the, the other interesting uh, donations that the ARDP has gotten um, include uh, a few thousand dollars from AP, uh, APS's parent company, Pinnacle West. Um, so if you pay your utility bill, you're funding ARDP. And, um, and then also, I believe, uh, at least $10,000 from the alcohol industry, a local wine and spirits group here. And obviously, they may be interested in uh, squashing the competition as well. So I want to dig in on more of these things. But one thing that struck me when you mentioned Prop 203 when we look at the differences between those, obviously one was for, for medical marijuana, this other is to more recreational use. How did Prop 203, I mean, we'll remember that it passed, of course, obviously, but beyond that, are, when you see polls, are they similar to what Prop 203 looked like? Was it, is it pretty tight? Is it, is it really hard to figure out which way it's going to go? Well, the number one question that people ask me about Prop 205 is, is it going to pass? I mean, everyone is wondering that right now. And that question is becoming, you know, a real burning question as we uh, get in the last few weeks before this election. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been pessimistic about it from the beginning because the poll numbers haven't been as high as the Prop 203 poll numbers were before Prop 203 passed. Um, so as I recall, it was polling at about 55 percent um, uh, 
before the election in 2010. And Amendment 64 in Colorado was also polling at a few percentage points higher than it ended up with. So apparently what happens, in, you know, potentially is uh, we could see an erosion of a few percentage points when, it, when the rubber hits the road with this thing. Mm. And because it hasn't started with a higher number, you know, that, that definitely worries the people that want to see it pass. The last poll um, from the uh, Morrison Institute at ASU showed that it, it could pass. And, and it um, was showing just over 50 percent yes with about 10 percent undecided. So, um, uh, you know, it, it definitely has a chance. There's the Trump effect, uh, which which is possible. Um, a lot of Democrats and young people uh, uh, who are for Prop 205, uh, uh, you know, on paper anyway, um, are expected to come out in opposition to Trump. Um, and so that could help the, uh, uh, the proposition pass. So what have we learned from Prop 64 in Colorado? Because we've heard from different, I believe it was the mayor of Colorado Springs who was in town a couple of weeks ago and, and he wishes that the state had not passed this, and yet there are others who are saying there have been benefits there. What numbers do you believe when it comes to whether it's teen use or whether money actually went to the schools? What do you know? Well, the the honest you know answer I think is that Colorado is doing just fine after it passed legalization. Um, the anti people want to talk about a disaster that has occurred there. A disaster has not occurred there. Um, one of the biggest uh, sources that, that you know if you want to take that to the bank is is the governor Governor Hickenlooper. Um, he was opposed to Amendment 64 at first, and he thought it would be terrible for the state. And now that a few years have passed, he has come around and he said that actually it's not too bad. It seems to be working. So I thought that was a pretty good. Uh, uh, praise for it um, coming from a, a former um, opponent to it. There are interesting um, statistics that come out of Colorado. Um, for instance, the level of um, uh, hospitalizations and calls to poison control centers about pediatric exposures, uh, exposures to marijuana have increased since legalization, both in Colorado as well as Washington. So I think that Arizona probably could expect to see an increase in pediatric exposures to marijuana if Prop 205 passes. Um, that's because people will have more access to these types of edibles that, that um, may be confusing for kids, and then they'll get high and forget and leave it on the table, and their kid might eat it. And so that could result in, in slightly more children going to the uh, hospital or, or you know, making a call to a poison control center. Um, but this hasn't been exactly a disaster in Colorado either, although there has been an increase. Um, uh, I talked to um, Dr. George Sam Wang out of the University of Colorado who did a big study on this, and he told me that as far as they know, every single kid has made a complete recovery. A couple of people who have been really outspoken against Prop 205 are county attorneys, Bill Montgomery, Sheila Polk. Now, there are some people who I think would argue that potentially if recreational marijuana use is permitted, maybe that allows law enforcement to focus on other things. Is there, do those contradict each other in any way? I don't think they contradict each other. Um, but um, I, I would like to find out more about how this would affect the things like the county attorney's office. Um, I've asked Bill Montgomery to do a study in his office. He, he always puts things on Facebook like, gee, what is this going to cost us? And I've responded to him and said, well, you can tell us what it'll cost the county attorney's office if you decide to do a study on your own office. Um, my estimate is that if you count simple marijuana possession and paraphernalia possession that are related to marijuana, those are the that's the largest category of felony uh, charges that his office gets. So it might be 15% of, uh, of what his office gets in terms of felony uh, charges. 
that's a pretty big component of his office. Um, they have at least one person that deals with that full time. They won't need that person anymore. And there are other major changes that could affect the office. Um, there's also the fact that when you get busted in Arizona for marijuana, um, you're arrested initially on a felony. They take you to jail. So this idea that you don't go to jail for marijuana is not true. You're not going to get sentenced for it if it's your first or second offense because of a 1996 law in Arizona. Um, but you will be taken to jail. You'll know the inside of a jail cell on your initial arrest. And obviously that'll be pretty uncomfortable. Um, in Arizona, any amount is a felony. Um, once you get through the system, though, these charges are typically knocked back to um, uh, deferred prosecution. If, as long as you take a drug addiction class, um, then they'll erase the charges, essentially. Right. Basically, when it comes down to it, why does this make sense? What is the best argument you have heard with all the studying you've done and all the people you've spoken to for legalization? Because there are some people, probably a small percentage, who might say, well, Mm, why don't we, we already have a lot of people who use alcohol, maybe too many people, maybe too many young people. Is this going to add to more complications? But are, are there other positives that would counteract that? There are more positives. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, I'll just start by saying the freedom isn't free. So there, there may be some additional problems, uh, especially as the system begins to roll out. Um, but in my opinion, there's a couple of different major benefits to this. The first is the freedom issue. Um, here in Arizona, especially, you can buy AK-47 uh, just by going to the store. Um, you can use alcohol, tobacco. You can ride a motorcycle without a helmet if you want. Those things are more dangerous than marijuana, arguably. Um, you have over 600,000 adults who are 21 and over and use marijuana regularly in Arizona. That's according to the state uh, joint legislative budget committee. Um, so if that's true, then that's a pretty large percentage of people in Arizona that are regularly committing felonies. So they wouldn't be committing felonies if Prop 205 passed. And um, they uh, wouldn't risk their future earning potential because if you get busted, even if you end up with a deferred prosecution or it gets knocked down to a misdemeanor, that can still show up on the court system uh, that uh, website, which is available to anyone. So an employer can see that. It could affect your earning potential. Um, so, so there'll be this uh, freedom for people to use marijuana and not have to worry that it's going to affect their future in a negative way because of its Ill illegality apart from any you know, negative benefit the marijuana may have. Um, then there's also the fact that um, these 600,000 people are regularly using marijuana now and they buy it on the black market. So um, although there's a debate about just how many millions of dollars this, this bill will bring in by taxing the legal marijuana, there's no question that um, it'll be a lot more money than is being brought in now for a substance that people already use. Ray Stern of Phoenix New Times. Ray, thanks for keeping us up to date on Prop 205. We appreciate it. Thanks. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Governor Doug Ducey is currently on what's being called an economic development mission in Canada. He's scheduled to meet with that nation's leaders in the mining and aerospace industries, and he's joined on the trip by Arizona Chamber of Commerce President and CEO Glenn Hammer, along with GPEC President and CEO Chris Camacho, among others. It isn't new for a governor to visit another country to help establish or strengthen business relations, but is this one important, and if so, how important? With me to talk about that for a few minutes is Dennis Hoffman, economist at the W.P. Carey School of Business at ASU. Dennis, good morning. Great to be with you today, Steve. So how important is Arizona's trade relationship with Canada? 
So I think uh, our trade with both Canada and Mexico is uh, is really key to continuing economic development, um, Steve. And uh, we, we have some some obvious advantages here, not just with Mexico due to our proximity, but uh, due to the, the large influx of winter visitors from Canada in Arizona that have seen Arizona, are kind of intrigued by Arizona, might consider investing in Arizona, have businesses that would uh, be conducive to investments in Arizona. Um, Couple that with the fact that uh, a significant number of copper mining firms and mining firms in general are based in Canada uh, and see Arizona Arizona as as, uh, a potential uh, development area. So I, I think it's um, I, I think visiting uh, Canada, I think visiting Mexico, I think missions like this, frankly, are are important to some degree with any state. But I think they send a special message uh, from a state like Arizona that has, you know, we've we've sent mixed messages about uh, openness and economic development. Let's say over the last decade. Um, this is a different type of message, and I think an important one. And I think the members of this trip uh, are, are keenly, in, keenly engaged in uh, and are interested in international trade. I, I know of nobody that thinks more highly of trade than someone like a Glenn Hammer, for example. Uh, he's heavily engaged in it, understands the role that it plays in business, and I think it's important to have folks like him on the mission. And Paul Madsen, too, by the way, the uh, – ASRS director uh, coming along and his roots in Canada, I think are important as well. No, it's interesting, Des, when you mentioned the idea, there were a lot of folks who uh, certainly during the downturn were coming from Canada to buy property here in Arizona and uh, established quite quite a groundswell here as it relates to that. Um, There are going to be some who are going to be cynical about uh, going going on these trips in general. I think you've pointed out why they're a good idea. Are they an even better idea now that the last couple of years... U.S. Arizona have been clear of the recession. Is it time to reestablish some of those roots? Oh, absolutely. And, and again, I want to make the distinction between, say, the average trip that uh, some contrarians might call a, you know, a junket or a waste or a misappropriation of, of time, energy, resources. I don't really think that applies very well to Arizona. I think in Arizona needs to emit that strong signal that we are open for business, that we're interested in business development, that we appreciate the role that trade, uh, foreign direct investment can play in the development of an economy. And I think that's really very, very important signal for Arizona to send to other states, uh, to the north, to Canada, and to Mexico. Because as as we well know, Steve, as a result of the political debate, uh, we haven't always sent that signal. In fact, we've sent the opposite. Uh, and so I think some movement in the opposite direction is important, and I think Governor Ducey's mission is is right on the mark in this regard. Well, Dennis, you, you brought up politics, and so I have to go bigger picture now on us because uh, as far as Arizona is concerned specifically, but even more generally, we've heard a lot between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton related to the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. Donald Trump has called that another you know, potential of a bad trade deal. Hillary Clinton has has supported it, and now maybe she's not a, not uh, quite as supportive as she had been. If that goes forward, 
what are some of the pluses? And if there are specific pluses that could come to Arizona, or are there concerns if, if it were to come, come through and, and hurt Arizona? So I'm more concerned about this topic generally as opposed to any particular deal. Uh, I haven't heard Mr. Trump say that any trade deal ever has been a good one. So, uh, and, and I heard Mr. Stan- Mr. Sanders say things similar, and I think that, uh, that Mrs. Clinton then uh, has, uh, has moved in that direction as well. There's a, there's a populist groundswell that is anti-globalization, anti-trade, and um, look, you're dealing with an economist here. Uh, I'm not a populist. Uh, you know, trade is one of the one, one of the things that we we virtually all of us embrace the benefits of trade. The challenge, Steve, is that the benefits are diffused, not as easily measured as the costs, and there are some costs in terms of job losses and in low-skill and middle-skill areas. They're, they're isolated, but they're very real and uh, painful to those people that incur them. But the benefits, and the benefits are largely in product availability at affordable price, and those benefits are really very, very important. And they, frankly, they accrue to middle- and low-income people probably more than they do to high-income people. So there's just a tremendous amount of benefits, and we need more discussion about those benefits uh, that, that trade can bring. And I, I think it's, it, again, going back to this mission, I think it's important that we engage in missions like this because these folks clearly have recognized the benefits of trade. Uh, business understands them, and it's it's good that our state um, policy leaders and uh, economic development officials embrace the same notion. Economist Dennis Hoffman of the W.P. Carey School of Business at ASU. Dennis, good to catch up. Thanks. Steve, great to be with you today. Have a good day. Still to come on here and now, we'll talk with Devin Brown about a new film about the Arizona-Mexico border. It's called Hotel Arizona. And then Lori Natero is back with her new book, Crossing the Horizon. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Cancer Treatment Centers of America in Phoenix, offering clinical trials for multiple cancer types, including immunotherapies that harness the body's immune system to help fight the cancer. CancerCenter.com keywords clinical trials. This is Here and Now on 91.5 KJZZ. Coming up on Here and Now at 12 noon, Hurricane Matthew is threatening the East Coast, also breaking our addiction to online form information, and the world's smallest machines. Three scientists win the Nobel Prize for their molecular inventions. Those stories and more coming up on Here and Now today at noon. In traffic on the Loop 101 northbound at Thomas, there's a crash blocking the shoulder. Also on the Loop 101 southbound at Princess Boulevard, the on-ramp is not blocked by a crash, but there is a crash on the on-ramp restricting a little bit of traffic. Looking for a high today of 87 in the valley, a low tonight of 64. Right now, it's hazy in Tucson, 79 degrees, 56 in Flagstaff. In Phoenix, it's sunny and 81 degrees at 1140. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Earlier this week, the U.S. Supreme Court began its latest term, and one of its first decisions was to decline to rehear a suit related to President Obama's executive action on DACA and DAPA recipients. 
Also, the concerted effort to push comprehensive immigration reform in the U.S. was essentially shot down a few years ago when the House wouldn't take up the issue. And the current campaign season features ads for Sheriffs Joe Arpaio and Paul Babieu that, at least in part, emphasize how they've cracked down on drug smugglers and border crossers. Journalist Devin Brown, also a former reporter here at KJZZ, decided to focus on a different, less emphasized part of the immigration debate with her first film, Hotel Arizona. The film will be shown on Sunday afternoon at 3 as part of the Tucson Film and Music Festival. And Devin Brown joins me now. Devin, who are the main characters of Hotel Arizona and what do they do? Hotel Arizona is about a young woman who lives on the Sonoran side of the border, and she starts basically a Yelp to review the coyotes that bring migrants across the desert. The idea that people would actually do that, I would think that would put her in a little bit of danger. Maybe some of the coyotes who got bad reviews wouldn't like that. It does put her in danger, and this is why this is why I made the movie. Journalism is wonderful in many ways, and I feel most myself when I am being a journalist, but it's also fairly reactive. Your job as a journalist is to write about the world as it's happening, what's happened. And sometimes you want to, I wanted to write about something that wasn't happening, i.e. a system of accountability in the migration economy. I had been going down to this town of Altar for a number of years when I worked here at KGZZ, and then afterwards I actually moved to um, a border town called Sasabi, and Altar is just uh, um, 40 miles south of that. And uh, it was perplexing to me and disheartening and upsetting that certain um, guides who were committing sort of atrocious crimes in the desert kept getting clients over and over and over again. And I'm not an expert in informal economies, but I know, for example, that if I, you know, Steve, if you went to go buy what you thought was cocaine from someone on a street corner and found out it was baby powder, you would go to a different guy on a different corner the next day and maybe you'd tell your friends to do the same thing. And that was not happening in this um, world at all. There's There was not that system of accountability. And so... I wanted to see what would happen if there was. And because I couldn't write about that as a journalist, because no one was doing this, I wrote it as a script. How embedded did you have to get? How did you gain the trust of the people in the community? It took so long. When I first moved to Sasabi, I, you know, rumors spread that I was this DEA agent on some sort of international espionage mission. On some which... level, that must have been cool, though. <laughs> <laughs> Admittedly, I was a little bit flattered, but um, but also just so surprised for years when I'd been a reporter, like all through my 20s, I would show up places and people thought I was like a high school student. I mean, just like no one was intimidated or bothered at all by me. And then to be in a place where I was posing this big threat was... Yeah, it was really tricky. If people don't trust you or they think you're a DEA agent, they're not going to talk to you. And so actually my first step, I started a newspaper at the border, um, a, a long-form paper in English and Spanish, to just build trust. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you're gonna, I'm going to interview you and you're going to tell me this thing and I'm going to quote you accurately. And if you ask me not to use your, your last name, I won't use your last name. I'm not going to throw you under the bus. I'm not going to do sensationalized drug pieces. And I published a few issues, and um, through that, I met um, a, a family that I moved in with in Caborca, which is in the town right next to Altar. One of my roommates was a guy that fixed the radios for the lookouts on the mountaintops. I mean, it, it didn't take a long time to reach the trafficking industry, mm-hmm. um, but it took a long time for them to believe that me that I, that I was just a writer trying to write something. 
So what are some of the pitfalls of putting together a film like this in not your native language, though you're obviously quite adept in Spanish, but it's not your native language. You have to get the trust of people, as we mentioned, and you're trying to put together all the technical aspects of this. It was hard to shoot it in Spanish for sure, uh, but it was harder to shoot it in Mexico. Mm. We shot one day in Mexico and four days in Tucson because now I wasn't just worrying about my own safety, but I was worrying about the safety of the uh, cast and crew. I didn't want to put anyone in altar in any sort of situation where they were on camera and they didn't want to be, they didn't feel safe. Be like, if they're on camera, does that violate some... It was just very, very complicated. There's a lot of rules down there about, you know... <laughs> I am from Los Angeles, which is by and large a city in which like everyone wants to be on camera or a lot of people like to be on camera. And, you know, t this is totally the other extreme. And um, that was really tricky. And just like the technical aspects of what are you allowed to bring across the border in terms of cameras and equipment. And because we shot so much in Tucson, I actually bought a lot of props down there, props in quotes carpet slippers, little deodorants, little hair gels, this huge camouflage clothing, backpacks. And I had this huge, huge bag that I was bringing back one day to put into our, you know, set in Barrio Viejo in Tucson. And like I was stopped at the border for six hours or something. And they searched so suspicious. Why was I buying all? And I'm like, I'm just trying to make a movie. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with journalist Devin Brown, a former reporter here at KJZZ. Her new film, Hotel Arizona, will be shown on Sunday afternoon at 3. It's part of the Tucson Film and Music Festival. Now, there are going to be some people who are going to say, all right, here's Devin. I heard her as a journalist. I, I respect her work. But she is an Anglo woman from Los Angeles, and she, here she is. Now, how did you avoid having it feel exploitational in any way? That's a fair question. And, I mean, it's an honor every time anyone shares their story with me. When you're working at the border and you're interviewing migrants, some of them have never spoken to a member of the media before. Sometimes I'm the first American they've spoken to. For sure, a lot of times I'm the first American woman they've ever spoken to. And it is such like an amazing thing when we spend a half an hour or an hour or a couple of hours or a day together and they share with me their whole life story and their journey. And I never forget that. And when I was making the movie, I just tried to keep the focus on the conversation that I was trying to start, not on myself or, you know, I, I'm not. There were many, many, many people when I showed them the script in Los Angeles that wanted there to be like more Americans in the movie. And that just runs totally contrary to my experience of the towns of Altar and Caborca mm -hmm. and Sasabi. I was there for almost three years and I did not see very many other Americans besides missionaries or sometimes journalists. I'm trying to start a conversation around, uh, you know, migration at the border in a, in a deeper and more meaningful way. And if I kept my focus on that, then I felt mostly okay. And the film's entirely in Spanish? This film is entirely in Spanish, which is why it became a film and not a pilot. I'm like on a mission to try and make a, a longer series that is to the immigration debate what The Wire is to the drug war. And if I were to do that, I would need a pilot that, you know, is a, is a good sort of window or preview or sample, really, of like what someone could expect to see in every episode. I'm not trying to write a series that's 100 percent in Spanish. I'm not trying to write a series that's 100 percent in Mexico. But I wanted to give an introduction into this world. And that felt especially important because when I was first having like, you know, meetings about the idea in Los Angeles a year and a half ago, I kept getting this feedback that um, 
oh, it's like, that's so great. You want to do a border show? We already have a show about Mexican drug lords. And I, I just would like, I was on the other side of the meeting, like, how did I just talk for 10 minutes about immigration? And they, they just could not sort of hear the word border and not think drugs. Yeah. And so I wanted to sort of give a, as much as you can do a deep dive in 22 minutes of what the migration economy looks like outside of the drug trade. How significant is it that your lead, your protagonist, is a female? I think pretty significant and honest mm-hmm. and authentic. I would. I wanted to write a, a, a woman just because I gave her a lot of my own um, interior life um, because I was the one that was asking this question of why wasn't there a Yelp there. And it also felt important because, first of all, in my experience being a, a journalist who mostly covers migration but a little bit of drugs, usually those business triangles involve a sister or a wife or a woman. They are, they are, if I wanted to tell that story, I would make sure that there were women in there too. But in the migration universe, I mean, these are families and children and um, more men walk alone in the desert than women do for sure, for obvious reasons, for safety reasons. But as far as the the towns that are entirely supported by the migration, like their, their, their town economy is the migration economy. The women that are, or the people that are running the hotels and the guest houses, and that are often sewing the carpet slippers, or that are, you know, the the canned food that are that have high salt content, all of it. I mean, there's women everywhere. They're so involved, and that that also felt important. Journalist and now filmmaker Devin Brown. Her film is called Hotel Arizona, and you can see it Sunday afternoon at three in Tucson as part of the Tucson Film and Music Festival. And great to catch up with you. Good luck. Great to see you. Thanks, Steve. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. Writer and humorist Lori Natero has been here before, and we've discussed how she deserted the valley for the Pacific Northwest. We've talked about some of her very funny and sometimes very personal essays from books like The Idiot Girls Action Adventure Club and The Potty Mouth at the Table. But her newest book is historical fiction, which involved a lot of interviews and a lot of research. It's called Crossing the Horizon, and she'll be signing copies and talking about the book tomorrow night at 7 at Changing Hands in Phoenix. Lori, welcome back to Here and Now. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Steve. Okay, so we've laughed, we've cried together, but we've never talked historical fiction. So how much about these female pilots did you know before? We've all heard of Amelia Earhart. Sure. Have yeah. you heard of some of these other nope. protagonists? Okay. Well, never. Tell, tell what never, got you never. into this. Um, what got me into this is it's it's quickly becoming a fable, I think. But I had TiVo, which is a notoriously bad <laughs> DVR recorder, um, and the, the older it gets, the worse it gets. So it, it got this mind of its own. So I was recording Honest Housewives of New Jersey. I'm I'm not I'm no longer ashamed. I've worked through that. Um, and I was on the elliptical because it's my junk food for TV. And instead of taping that show, it taped something called Van. Vanishings, which was from the BBC. I'd never heard of it. And frankly, I was just too lazy to get off and change the channel. So I was watching it, and it depicted these three women. One was a German princess. One was the niece of Woodrow Wilson. And the other one was this aristocrat from England who was one of the richest women in Great Britain um, who had made the transatlantic attempt prior to Amelia Earhart by quite some time quite some time. Um, And I thought immediately, you know, the bells went off in my head. 
because I mean, people don't people know me as a humor writer, but before I was a humor writer, I was an arts writer. I was a food writer. I was an I, I was a reporter. So I love a good story. And when I heard that, I was like, How do I not know? How do we all not know about these people, these mm-hmm. women, women especially in 1927 is what we're talking. So I got off the elliptical, and I just wanted to make sure that this stuff was true. So I went to the internet to find my. <laughs> <laughs> to find my facts, cement it down, and there it all was. And I thought, wow, this would make a heck of a story. Um, so I started digging, and I found more women, and there were actually six of them all together. Um, they're all mentioned in this book, but I focus on three. So how cool were these women? Because it sounds like you know, we could talk about now with high tech and, and women and everyone else trying all sorts of different things. But we're talking about 1927. Mm-hmm. These planes were not exactly foolproof. And they were taking a lot of risk. Um, I mean, were you just stunned by all the different things they did? It was crazy. These planes were like bicycles with a tarp over them. They were two of these planes. One, they were two of them were wooden. One was canvas. One was a canvas plane. You know, and 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 they would do everything that they could to not have ice accumulate. There weren't even radios on this, these planes because the radio, the wireless, was not reliable enough. Nine times out of ten, you weren't going to make contact with anyone. So they would leave the, the radios on the ground. They had very, very limited technological support to get them across. They were really focusing on a compass, basically. And the areas of these planes were so, because I went to different air museums to kind of get a a sense of how big these planes were. And I had seen pictures of them and photographs. When I actually saw them, people then were certainly much smaller than we were. But these planes were, I, I, I would say, maybe three feet wide. Maybe, maybe like a yard. So these pilots and co-pilots were touching each other the entire time. Um, And any romance that you have of soaring over these mountains, you are fighting gales and storms and lightning and ice in this very closed, freezing compartment. We're talking 10,000 feet in the air. So um, the courage it took for these women to get up there, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and not only for them to get up there, but 27 people died in 1927 making these attempts, seasoned pilots, World War I pilots. And here come these, and I'm, I'm not going to call them little girls, but here come these, these women charging out of nowhere. Ruth Elder started thinking about her flight in May of 1927. She made her flight in October 1st. She did not even have a pilot's license until like two days before she left because they wouldn't, they couldn't clear it with the uh, with the aviation administration that she had to have her license. So, um, and she's the one who, who took off. And Amelia Earhart, everyone knows her. I'm mm. talking way too much, I know, but I'm very excited. Yeah. Amelia Earhart was not a pilot on her flight. She was a passenger. She sat in the back when Wilmer Stoltz piloted her across, and admittedly, she said she sat there like a sack of potatoes, where both Elsie McKay and Ruth Elder were pilots. They piloted those flights across the ocean. So there are a lot of major figures mentioned. You mentioned, even though it's it's fiction, there's obviously a lot of accurate history in there. Yes. And I want to have you read a couple paragraphs from page 111 of Crossing the Horizon, which is fascinating. The way you write, obviously, is, is great, but also some of the names that are mentioned, even just these couple of paragraphs. Well, Charles Levine, we're going to start with Charles, Charles Levine. Charles Levine was, um, he owned the Columbia Aircraft Corp- Corp- Corporation, and he... It, 
initially he was supposed to be selling the plane to Charles Lindbergh for the spirit of St. Louis. They um, came to agreement. Then Charles Lindbergh kind of came to a new agreement, which Lindbergh did not agree with. Um, and they escorted Lindbergh out of the building. Um, and they were neck and neck competitors trying to get across. Lindbergh, of course, made it over first. Um, and then um, Levine and uh, Clarence Chamberlain flew his plane, the Miss Columbia, that went the canvas one over the ocean um, to f- Germany. They landed. Um, so Levine was the first transatlantic passenger. Mm. Just to kind of set okay, that up. Great. So okay. As Charles Levine found, even having a modicum of fame or celebrity at grants access to the world's otherwise unattainable, and he was thrilled when he received an invitation from the Pope for an audience. As Levine entered hall after hall, each lined with Vatican guards who saluted him as he passed, his eyes got bigger and bigger, his jaw falling a little after he passed priceless tapestries and artifacts, until he was escorted into the room where the Pope had just met with the King of Egypt. Of course, Levine kissed his ring. The next day, Hinchliffe and Levine were off to Naples to fly over Mount Vesuvius and back up to Forley to meet with Benito Mussolini, one of Levine's heroes. Mussolini's father had been a blacksmith, so Mussolini was not terribly different from the son of a scrap metal merchant and had risen to the top. That Mussolini, Levine thought, he didn't didn't take crap from nobody. (laughs) That's Lori Natero reading from her new book, Crossing the Horizon, a work of historical fiction, and Lori will be at Changing Hands in Phoenix tomorrow night at 7. Yes, very true. So you were a reporter, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I know that even when you're, you're writing all your humorous essays, I mean, these just don't come to you magically. I mean, you're, you're coming up with interesting stories, interesting ways to put them. What did it feel like to, even though you've been working on this book for a long time, to put that reporter's hat back on? And you talked to some relatives yeah. of these, which must have been, a, how long did it take you to track them down? And, and what did it feel like to talk to people who actually knew those folks you're writing about? It was, the, there were two families. I found a couple of people right away. I found Ruth Elder's family right away because they had plugged it on Facebook. They're very proud of her. Um, Uncle Thomas was one of my greatest sources. He's her nephew. He's now 93. And my biggest fear is that this book would come out and he would no longer be living. Um, But it so happened that he's still alive. I talked to him last week, and he's strong and going. Um, Some members of the George Haldeman family, I've been looking for them for five years, and I just found them a month ago. Um, And Hinchliffe, who is mentioned a little bit here with Charles Levine, um, his daughter is living in Australia. She's 89, and I talk to her now once a week. She's she's wonderful. Um, And in talking to all these people. I love their voices and stories so much that I put up together a presentation that I'm going to show tomorrow night, and it's their stories of their relatives flying over with their voiceovers um, over, like, vintage footage of, you know, Henschla flying and Ruth flying and George Haldeman, um, and it's, it's quite moving to talk to these people and hear you know, what they have to say. And uh, it's it's like I'm talking to rock stars. They don't understand it, you know. But for me, I'm like, I have been living with your relatives for five years. Um, and they are such heroes to me. And I really, really, really want to do their stories right because they've been covered by history for so long. And it's such a, a beautiful looking book, too. One thing I didn't realize, maybe this is done in historical fiction, maybe it's not, but the actual photos right. of all these women of Charles Lindbergh, it's incredible the combination. You go from reading historical fiction to seeing these amazing photos. Briefly, I, wh- what sort of look did you want for the book? Does this fit what you wanted? This, yes. This was, um, initially my editors were very reluctant to put the photos in because they thought it would look too much like nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the book is really, I mean, it's very heavily based on fiction. I researched it for a long time, and I would actually call the book 95% true. 
Um, it's 95% nonfiction. I stuck very close to the facts. Even a lot of the dialogue in there is taken from interviews and magazines and newspapers and um, interviews that I had that were audio. So I didn't, I really wanted to get into the heads of these characters, but I didn't want to put words in their mouths. So I, I try to stick as closely as possible to what their stories really were. And including and, and going along with that, I want to let people know what these women look like, what their gear was, what kind of what their planes looked like, what their moments of elation and joy were as Ruth had her ticker tape parade, you know, as she as they land in Paris finally after their terrifically harrowing but wonderful adventure. Writer Lori Natero, whose her new book is called Crossing the Horizon. She'll be at Changing Hands in Phoenix tomorrow night at seven. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Steve. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks to our senior producer, Sarah Ventry and Tiara Vianne, for their help on today's program. If you missed any part of it, please go online to kjzz.org later this afternoon. This is KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock. KJZZ is supported by Desert Schools Federal Credit Union, a locally owned lender offering a personalized approach for commercial real estate loans to help grow your business. Learn more at desertschools.org business. Mm-hmm.